HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Essex Market. Essex Market is New York City's most historic public market, proudly located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Find the freshest produce, meat, fish, and specialty foods from over 30 unique vendors. Learn more about the market's family of small neighborhood businesses at EssexMarket.nyc. This week on Meat and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm Souther Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. Hey, Greg. How are you, bud? You know, doing all right. Still vertical. How about you? Uh, mostly vertical, I suppose. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? I did. Yeah, I got uh, the last turkey in the store, which meant that I got a bird that was way bigger than plan A, which means I've had Thanksgiving every night for about a week. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I spent it alone in my apartment. I didn't leave. I didn't speak to a single human being. I didn't. I didn't utter a word out loud all day, and it was exactly what I needed. <laughs> um, just a complete and total break. Uh, and we had a break from the show that week as well. So a little bit of a little bit of breathing room for me. It's been a, a, a lot of running. Um, I think you said it best off air. It's like uh, I'm, I've been running in a full sprint with no idea or, or sense of where the finish line is. So it's uh, it's been a lot of a lot of stress, frankly. Exactly. Yeah. It could be it could be on the next stride. It could be in, you know, another half a mile. You don't know, but you just got to keep running because <laughs> yeah. there's yeah. no alternative. Right. Well, the only way out is through. Um, listen, off air, you were telling me you uh, you've been corresponding with uh with our government. Tell, tell me about that. How that's going. Um, well, 
Corresponding on my end, I don't know if they've been corresponding with me, if you could call it that. But um, yeah, back uh, this summer when the Restaurants Act, which we've talked about uh, on air before, it's essentially a, 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 a tailor-made relief package for independent restaurants that would really provide you know the, the specific relief that we need because the other programs that have been out there while well-intentioned you know it's kind of been like putting a square peg in a round hole like you know it didn't they didn't work for the particular needs and and eccentricities that is independent restaurants of which there are uh, i believe the figure is uh, half a million in this entire country like it's it's a lot and you know the restaurants act which is now part of the heroes act which passed the house and is stalled in the senate everybody find your surprise face for that one yeah um, yeah i know who saw that coming um is is that tailored relief and when that was you know getting started i uh did you know the good mr smith goes to washington thing i wrote uh our congressperson here in new york uh in brooklyn where i live and i wrote to our two senators uh kristen gillibrand chuck schumer who is the senate majority leader um they're they're on they're on they're they're the good guys they're on the right side but I just wanted to you know register my support for this act which is very necessary to keep our industry alive and Christian Gillibrand I remember uh, wrote back pretty quickly saying yes I support this act and I thought good and same with uh, my congressperson Nadia Velasquez um, for whatever reason. Charles Schumer only wrote me back on November 24th, about five months after I sent this. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from his letter here because I have it pulled up. As you know, the coronavirus pandemic has caused an economic crisis. Several independent restaurants have temporarily closed and furloughed their staff. Now, if you're listening to this show, I'm sure the word temporarily made you as upset as I was when I first read that. So... I wrote him another letter back. Uh, I I thought it was very cordial. I just wanted to say, hey, man, look, I know you're on the right side here. I just want to make sure you understand the urgency of the situation. These aren't temporary closures and furloughs we're talking about here. These are permanent closures. These are permanent layoffs. This is an industry that is just in absolute apocalyptic crisis. And I know you're working with us. I just want to make sure you understand the gravity of the situation. And a few days later, I got back a response to my uh, reply, word for word, the exact same letter that I got the first time. Total so boilerplate just, stuff. Yeah, just a cut and paste or auto auto reply. Exactly. Yeah, I got I got lumped into some. You know, this person is writing about restaurants. Let us send them this letter thing. So uh, I would like to encourage uh, our listeners. If especially if you live in the New York area, but even if you don't, because, again, Charles Schumer is the Senate majority leader. He has a lot of uh, excuse me, the Senate minority leader. He has a lot of sway there. Um, I would encourage you to write him just to make sure. And and I also want to say, keep it cordial. Don't yell at the man. He is on the right side here. He's one of the good guys. He's working. But please, I want to encourage people to make sure that he understands the urgency here, that this isn't just a temporary setback for our industry. This is an existential crisis. And if we don't get legislation that works for us now, there aren't going to be independent restaurants left once, you know, we're all vaccinated and back to air quotes, air quotes, normal, you know? Right. I mean, I keep falling back on the, uh, you know, the NRA, the the good one, the National Restaurant <laughs> Association. They uh, they predicted, uh, you know, pretty early on in the pandemic that 
that 85% of all sole proprietorships would be closed by January. 85 is a massive number. And, you know, I've mentioned it on the on the show before, uh, back uh, before the pandemic began, I had five bars and today I have one. So that's 80% of my businesses. So I'm, I'm right in that. Yeah, you're uh, right. You're right on track. Uh, so, you know, it's happening uh, and it's continuing to happen. And, you know, here in New York, um, we still haven't gone through the second shutdown, even though our numbers are much greater than they were when we went through the first shutdown. Um, I'm curious as to why we haven't, because um, I fully believe that a, a shutdown will um, make several bars and restaurants go away forever. And that's a sad fact. But I also believe that us not shutting down us trying to limp through the cold weather, so outdoor seating is becoming less and less viable, uh, us seeing the number spike, so even the 25% allowable indoor seating is becoming less and less uh, uh, um, uh, you know, taken upon by the consumer because there's, there's fear. Um, the longer we go without shutting down, my, 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 uh, my feeling is the more bars and restaurants will, will close permanently. So, you know, I'm, again, I'm running that sprint. I'm having to work every day, but I'm, I'm hopeful kind of every minute of every day that we get the word that we can't be open. So I'm running that sprint without any idea of where the finish line is. And the thing is, and I know, again, this isn't going to come as a surprise to, to most of our listeners, but you're not alone at all. Every single bar owner that I have talked to is since, you know, October, basically, when there was that chill in the air and the numbers were starting to spike, has said, like, yeah, we don't need to be open. It is it is doing active harm to our business and our community for us to be open and potentially be a vector for spread. Like, uh, exactly. we need a shutdown, but we also need to get something to tide us over until we can open back up again or we won't open back up again at all. Right, right. Uh, yeah, unless you're positioned in such a way that you can withstand another uh, completely dry spell. But the current rate is that we're not even taking in enough to pay for what we're doing. So every day we're open, we're losing money. Um, uh, and we were only just kind of starting to break even on the whole pandemic um, uh, when, when now we're, again, starting to dig into a hole instead of out of it. Ugh, it's tough, Greg, and I know it's tough for everybody out there listening. And you know, all I can say is, uh, you know, do your best to keep holding on, keep your spirits high, and you know, if you're going to go down, go down swinging. Don't go, don't go down without a fight. Amen, man. Um, to turn the tables a little bit and get on a, 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 a you know, maybe a more positive topic, who's joining us in the virtual studio today, Greg? Uh, joining us in the virtual studio today, we have the uh, head of the African Rum Council, uh, Eugene. Oh, God, here we go. Uh, he was making fun of us because uh, yeah. apparently we were doing this wrong when we were practicing. Eugene Nyundi, how are you, man? I'm very good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, thanks for joining us uh, from so far away. You know, we're still kind of getting used to having guests on from so far away. With You know, for the most of the speakeasy's uh, time on air, we've been an in-studio live broadcast. And so we've, ha- we've got the opportunity to speak to people from far away. Because of the pandemic, if there's any kind of silver lining, I guess that's it. So again, thank you for joining us. I know it's quite a time difference there. You're looking at late in the evening, whereas we're just early in the afternoon. So thanks for being on. It's always a pleasure to be around family, you know, from <laughs> thanks, the other man. side of the Amen, world. Dude. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe kick it off by, uh, you know, letting our listener know, Eugene, like, uh, you know, a little bit about yourself, you know, who, who are you and, and how did you get into the business that, that we're all in together? And, and what what exactly is the, the rum bishop? Um, so number one, I I am a chef, I am a bartender, drinks consultant, and a farmer. 
and a farmer. Wrapped. I love that. Yeah, yeah, all wrapped in one. But the journey started out when I was a young person. I loved good food, so I always used to play around in the kitchen, which made me experiment with flavor. And I always got frustrated from you know just something as simple as soup cannot be soup, you know. So with all that, it got me into places where I would go into restaurants and critique them. And because of that, I developed a good palette of taste in food, which led me to start writing about restaurants. And then later on, I got in as a chef, never really went to school to learn about culinary arts. It was just something that I had because I'd practiced so much. And um, later on, many years later, I became a bartender and I fell in love with rum as my spirit of choice. And through my friend um, and my mentor, Victoria Monzi, who founded the ARG, which is the Africa Rum Girl, she's the one who actually showed me a different light to rum and why rum is the, essentially the spirit that will save mankind, you know. Oof. <laughs> High the praise. spirit that will save mankind. Yeah. I mean, can you uh, can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, I, I you know, I, I I don't disagree at all. <laughs> I, I totally am on board with that. I just kind of want to hear what the, uh, the 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 rationale behind that is. I mean, so number one, we all love sugar. So sugar has always been. I mean, when you think about it, there are only three types of barons: either a sugar baron, an oil baron, or um, what's the other one? Oh. I can remember, but I, I remember sugar has been always something that people have always wanted to own or possess. And because of that, you know, rum comes from sugarcane. So if you can control the sugarcane, then you can control every other aspect of the industry, which explains why we make rum, why there's a lot of politics around it, and why, in essence, we need to protect the industry of sugar at all costs. Because it's so connected to the people. Well, right, yeah. We, all of us all across the globe consume sugar, and, and sugar cane has grown uh, in many places across the world. So rum is produced in so many places across the world. So I can see how if there was going to be a spirit that was going to save mankind, it would probably be distilled from sugar cane or sugar syrup. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is no other product out there that is mostly consumed. I mean, we consume sugar either way out, and... Based out of that same fact, sugarcane is the only grass that is sustainable to all mankind. Right. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, I was a chef myself. Talk to me about how you, you basically what you outlined is that you, you started as a critic and then yeah. you moved into the kitchen. I want to hear that little that little bridge, but then I want to hear the bridge and try and understand it, maybe relating to my own life. What made you leave the kitchen and go to the bar? But uh, how did you start as a critic? So as a, I mean, uh, growing up, I always uh, used to go into restaurants and, you know, you, you look at these menus and some of these menus are just completely work. They're just out of place, out of space. And you're just like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. So you buy something, you don't, it doesn't meet the bill. I will literally rant my heart out. I'll be like, this is not what you're selling. How can I pay $10 or $20 for a dish? And it's not it. So I was like, and based out of the fact that I used to run into the kitchens of most of this restaurant and I want to cook the same dish and just make the chef look as bad as... And I used to have this quote that I used to tell people, the kitchen is not your mother's house. You know, it's not your mother's room. Please respect it. These ingredients are, you know, people toil to produce these ingredients. So 
you better make the best dish you're going to make. Because if I'm going to pay $10, it has to be worth $10. If it's $1, fine. I don't mind the $1, you know, if it's a $1 shark, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's you want you want to know that you just want to know that there was respect that went into the the thing that you made. And I love I found a, a quote on your Instagram that I absolutely love that I'm definitely going to steal and use later. But it's um, my grandfather used to say that once in your life, you need a doctor, a lawyer, a policeman and a preacher. But every day, three times a day, you need a farmer. And just definitely. that level of, you know, we it's so easy in modern times to become divorced from where our food comes from and to not really uh, respect it. And I love that, you know, that notion of like, no, every, every time you eat, every time you step into a kitchen, you have to sort of have a little bit of a, an almost like kind of a sanctified respect for the fact that this is, this is nourishment. This came from the land and be grateful for it, you know? I mean, that is something that's very important considering we are, we are having a generation of people who they know chicken, but they don't know how to raise a chicken or they don't even know how to slaughter a chicken. So someone has to do the, the dirty work of slaughtering the chicken. So based out of the simple fact that chicken is like the best you know, protein out there, people need to respect the land. People need to understand how and what is fed on this animal so that, you know, it's something as simple as that can either impact your health better or worse you know and that is something that we should consider something very important you know yeah i think uh it's you know when i taught at the new england culinary institute i would talk to my students and i would say you know in some somewhat hyperbole but i think also there's some truth to it i would say i think americans especially go to the grocery store and they stand at the back of the store where all the meat is packaged and they think meat comes from back there they wheel they they wheel up to the drive-through window and reach their arm out to grab a bag and they think that hamburgers come from in there there's a complete uh lack of uh connectivity to the the land where the that animal was raised and the fact that yes as you said someone has to do the dirty work of dispatching and slaughtering and then someone has to do the dirty work of processing and butchering and then it gets to the consumer level and again they they have no there are too many tears in the way for them to see where it comes from. And this surely is true of everything that comes out of the earth as well. You know, corn, corn comes from the produce section, you know, uh, apples come from the produce section. We don't know where this stuff comes from or how it got here or all the steps in between. So it's good to know that you're out there trying to maybe make those connections for people. It is important because then again, we are in a situation of COVID-19 and you think about it, if famine is to save hospitality, we need to really trace back our steps to where our food comes from because we are what we eat. Absolutely. And I, and, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like your sort of approach to what you're doing now is more, um, it isn't just, you know, we, if, if you eat healthy things, you will be a healthy person. But if you have a certain level of, you know, if you understand and you respect the stuff, then you will be an understanding, respectful, hopefully person, but at least eater. Am I am I sort of on the right track there? Yes, you are. I mean, and especially for people in our industry, I mean, if you're going to go out there and be a better person, we need to understand, have respect for 
what is put on that table because it's what gives you your salary or your wages but above and beyond that it's also what keeps you healthy and going absolutely and we yeah. uh, we're we're at about the halfway point here. I sort of I sort of teased that we were going to talk that we were talking about what you're doing now. So we'll cover that uh, in depth after these messages from our sponsors. So stay tuned to the Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Essex Market is a historic public market located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. The market's 30-plus vendors source thousands of unique products, like locally made Jersey cheese to Nordic smoked specialties. This holiday season, Essex Market is offering five carefully curated gift boxes. Feast on the finest products from their family of small business owners. And that's great news for the team at HRN because we're always searching for unique gifts this time of year. Plus, these gift boxes are available for nationwide shipping now through December 18th. Send a taste of New York City to your loved ones both near and far and get 10% off when you enter promo code HRN10 at checkout. Visit shop.essexmarket.nyc to learn more and to start sending some food-filled holiday cheer today. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. Uh, we're talking with uh, Eugene Nyonde, uh, who is the rum bishop. Did I butcher it, Eugene? I hear you laughing already. Uh, <laughs> who is the who's the rum? I, at, least, at least I went right at it. I, I gave it a, a, the, the old college. I gave, I gave it the old college try. Head on. That's the way to do it, man. Uh, Eugene Nyonde, uh, uh, who is the rum bishop, uh, joining us all the way from uh, uh, Africa uh, on the Speakeasy. Uh, we were just talking about how. Um, you know, there's a, a little bit of a disconnect between the general public and where food and, and for that matter, drink come from and farming, etc. But I want to back up a step before we get into farming and talk about rum. Um, you mentioned earlier that you uh, you and some people over there kind of formed a coalition or, uh, uh, you know, a, a way to uh, like co- codify rums from where you're at. Talk about talk about rum. Um, so just talking about rum in Africa, I think one of the key things that we have had, number one, sugarcane in Africa has always had a contentious. I like it's always been contentious because of the politics around it. But uh, given that fact that um, production is still there, we don't have uh, the big factories that uh, like what Cari- the Caribbean islands have, but we have people who essentially make what you call the traditional style of rum in the village. So every village you go out there, wherever there's cane spirit or wherever there's sugar cane, they will always make something along those lines. So what we predominantly find is very rustic, very traditional, similar to grog or clarin across Africa, which is amazing because that's the stuff that you will never find packaged in a nice bottle or whatever it might be. Like people just take that thing as raw as it is, you know, yeah, I think there's a like a correlation between those styles of rum and like, uh, you know, f- uh, the real artisanal family-made uh, mezcals, right? You, you're gonna find these. Uh, you're gonna get them in a plastic jug. It's not ever gonna be in a glass bottle with a, a fancy label. It's, uh, you know, they're making enough for their communities and just enough to maybe sell a little bit and sustain themselves. Am I am I on the right track? Yes, you are. 
And so uh, are you working with these smaller uh, farms, uh, these sugarcane farmers, and trying to create, uh, you know, sort of a, a coalition among them? Or, or are you just letting them rest as they are as individuals? Or are you blending anything? How's it go? I mean, so some of the some of the producers have managed to, we have managed to get them making their own bottlings where they come around as a community and do one single bottling. Others are just deciding, you know, we are going to keep it as natural as it is. And I understand because then again, when you visit these different uh, areas, you'll be able to taste the purity of the stuff that you never find in a bottle. And I think that's one of the key things that I've always tried to push, like stop thinking of rum as what you see in a nice bottle. You need to taste some pure original stuff that is in the village and then try and bring in investors who can actually uplift the community around it. Because then again, it being such a critical thing to the community, we need people who are not just there to make profit, but also there to contribute to the social well-being of the community. Talk a little bit more about that, Eugene. How, when you say it's critical to the community, what, what do you define, define the, the critical control points? So number one, the key thing is most of this stuff is made by very old women. You know, so shout out to all the old women in the village who make this stuff. <laughs> they are the real, the real people, you know. We here in the city, we try to play around with the fancy bottlings and stuff like that. But then when you go out there and see this, you know, it kind of humbles you. It reminds you it's not about, you know, a large plantation as such. It's about, you know, those simple things in life that make a big difference. And so for me, it has always to tell their stories, number one, to always try to find investors for them, number two, and to remind people, no matter how big the industry might get, it started from somewhere so simple, you know, right down from the village, from one simple thing, the grass. That simple grass that you look, that takes 18 months to grow, you know. Never forget that. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the things that I love about, you know, agricole rums and cachaça is that you get that that sense of terroir that you don't always get from molasses rums, that like the 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 sense of place that you can sort of get from that fresh pressed sugarcane juice of like this tastes like you know, I mean, ter- terroir is kind of an ephemeral thing, but you can, in a way, taste the place where it came from through that. Definitely. And even when you speak about something as simple as uh, aging, aging in, uh, you know, all these different areas is different. I mean, we live in a continent that has 54 countries. So you can imagine something in West Africa will taste different from what is in East Africa or South Africa, just based out of the fact that we are not sharing the same terroir. We are all on different environmental zones, you know, like, so that is something that I always find very interesting, given that we're in the same continent. Well, I'm sure that makes your work with uh, the African Rum Guild really interesting because you're, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're coming to us from Kenya right now, right? Yes, we're coming from Kenya, and which is uh, like the heartland of East Africa. So was, is there, what, because we've talked in the past on the show about people who've tried to bring, you know, because the Caribbean islands all sort of have their own, um, you know, 
traditions, styles, histories when it comes to rum, and that while very interesting and cool and and fun to research can pose some challenges if you're trying to bring all those people from all those different rum producing cultures and histories together to try and you know band together for a greater economic share and just to make sure that you know copycats who are going to be diluting the brand are kind of you know kept off to the side is it sort of that same challenge bringing together uh, all these different rum producers with all these different rum cultures and and different environments and different terroir from all over the continent talk talk to us a little bit about that and and sort of the challenges of bringing those I mean, folks together i mean just 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 to cut it across um just like, as an example so rum producers in mauritius always tend to act like they are what is it called the french colonizers, right so they they treat the main inland african countries with a sign of um, animosity, slight animosity. And I understand, you know, it's like they have their own cultures. And so, so some of those challenges that you face, you'll find that even the styles of rum that are produced across the different areas is different based on the fact that they want to remain separate from the mainland. So one of the challenges we were having predominantly is that even the Mauritius rum producers wouldn't sell their products in Africa. Because they don't feel like Africans deserve this product. They will sell it to Europe. And so based out of that same frustration, now the producers who are in mainland Africa started to make their own stuff, realizing that if we cannot get it, let's make it on our own. Wow. So you did, did you sort of have the job of like, like bring like like bringing together the warring families, like in The Godfather or something, of trying to get all these folks I mean, to, to, to come together and and play ball and respect one it, another. I mean, it's uh, still a challenge to this very day. But you know, I, I I understand. So what I mean when I started, I I pretty much didn't understand you know all this. But like right now, I totally understand. And if, if you're to ask me, I'd rather support the mainland in rum producers. Because Mauritius has already developed, I mean, a stage of its own. So I, I totally respect that. But then the mainland in um, rum producers in Africa need to do a lot of work, which that's where the main work is. That's where the investment opportunities are. That's where if you were willing to invest in the rum industry, then Africa is the next place to be because there you have the sugarcane, there you have the temperature, there you have everything that you probably need for the next you know, a hundred years or something, you know, if you're looking at it from a business point of view. So I'm always, I, I, I you know, that's amazing that there's such an, uh, a, a big untapped market there. Um, and, you know, I do have to admit that going into this interview, I didn't, I didn't, I'm learning a ton from you about uh, rum producing in Africa, which is fascinating, but I'm also always fascinated by whenever someone describes a, a tough job and it sounds like you have a tough job i always want to know what sort of the origin story moment was of like you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna do this like i know it's gonna be tough or maybe you didn't know it was gonna be tough and you're like yeah how hard could it be to get all these different you know rum producers to to you know shake hands and hug and get along so what what sort of brought you what made you want to 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 do this to say hey this is a thing that that we need and we should come together even if it's going to be hard i mean just uh number one since the sugarcane industry in africa 
not having the same pace. So, for example, in Kenya, we have so many sugarcane, you know, industries that are trying to shut down either because of mismanagement or any, you know, stuff like that. And when you see that, that pains you because there is someone out there who's growing this crop for 18 months and they don't get paid or their pays are delayed. And it kind of puts you back into a place whereby if we are to find solutions to the sugarcane industry, then it needs to be attached to the one thing that can add value other other than just sugar, which is rum. Rum adds value, rum contributes more to the economy than just sugarcane. So based on other fact and seeing that happen across so many countries in Africa, I was like, you know what, this is the thing that I need to do. And just to remind people that um, if we are to look at uh, investing in Africa from a, you know, like from a production point, Start with rum, start with sugarcane. You know, that's because I want people to start with that because that can only help make things better because that's the first thing that is easily available that can be produced across Africa. Right. So talk a little bit, Eugene, about how you are so very interested, obviously, in sugarcane specifically and its growth and its use as a product, both sugar and as a secondary product of rum. How did you then sort of spin yourself? Uh, it seems like off the air we talked, and it seems like it started right around the time Corona started. You're you're back to farming now. You're you're cultivating the land and you're growing things out of the earth. Talk a little bit about that and what that means to you. So uh, first and foremost, I have to shout out to my grandma because my grandma used to typically give me these bitter medicines when I was growing up. That used to look like uh, drinking chocolate, you know, without milk. So every time she would force feed me or force drink me this medicine, and I was like, this is some disgusting <laughs> pukey here. I was like, why am I drinking this? And she'll be like, it's for your stomach, it's for your heart, and all that. So growing up, I really didn't like it. But now, the older I got, I realized, you know, it's not that bad. You know, it's, it's healthy, right? It helps you get your system right. And been in the industry for quite some time, I was like, you know, I need to start thinking about wellness from a place that is a bit modern, other than just the boiling of the roots and uh, the leaves like my grandma used to do. And so there came an aspect of me wanting to start a farm whereby we could focus on wellness, but from a place of better presentation, better tasting, better usage of these botanicals. And so now... I went back to my grandma and I was like, Grandma, can you teach me some of the botanicals you were growing when you were young? And so based on the fact, I started growing some of these botanicals and now I'm trying to use them to make uh, bitters and vermouth and just try to tweak them in recipes that I think will work. And now I get to use that daily on, you know, just my day-to-day routine of being around the farm, which means... I'm much more healthier. I understand botanicals better. And also, which gives room for people who will want to invest, as I I said, in making vermouth or bitters or gin in Africa, understand African botanicals. Because then again, if you understand it, then you'll understand that we Africans use botanicals for various reasons. Number one, sometimes sexual appetite, sometimes health appetite. You know, God knows what we, (laughs) everybody just, I don't know. Everybody's got something they're using it for. <laughs> I like I like that the, that that was number one. That was uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotta it have your priorities, important. 
I mean, it is important. You know, people are trying to stay healthy. Of course, yeah. Um, it's it's um, uh, just it's it, there's so much to learn too. It sounds like from from just kind of returning to you know these these uh, your roots. And earlier on in the interview, you said you know it's like oh, I, I didn't go to school for this, but it sounds like this is the sort of thing that you've been, you know, co- pretty much consistently learning about your entire life. And now with this uh, new botanical farming, you're kind of getting a chance to put all these lessons as, you know, as a, a kid drinking these bitter herbs, as a food critic, as a chef, kind of into practice and actually, you know, returning to the land and growing them yourself. Is that, it, well, it, am, am I am I right? And is it satisfying or is it just kind of, I mean, you know, it feel like another step on the journey? I, I feel so fun. F- what is funny is that I, I've always been running away from it. Growing up, you know, like going to the village or the countryside was something I, I, I you know, it was just a holiday thing. Like you're forced by your parents, go to the, you know, go and see your grandma. And like, I'm like, whatever, you know, it is what it is. So I pretty much didn't like going back to the countryside because I knew I was going to be force fed all these botanicals. Now I'm like, <laughs> So it's a, it's a little bit of dread. Like you want to see your grandma, but at the same time, there's a Pavlovian bell there that's not not that's <laughs> not doing too well. I, I mean, there was like a twenty liter jerry can of botanical juice waiting for you, and you were like, she will literally sit down with you and make sure you finish your your medicine cup. So and it's like three times a day, and I'm like, you know what, I'm done. So growing up, I, I mean, so I thought like when I'm gonna get to eighteen, I'm gonna you know just like every young adult finish never have to go back to the countryside so fun fact is now i get into the industry and you know we start talking about wellness i i mean i go this through this period of depression and ulcers and stuff like that and i'm like you know what uh, maybe i should consider traditional medicine so i start researching more about it i try start tasting and then you know the weirdest thing happens my tongue starts developing a palate for bitterness so now I can take you know some of this stuff right from the farm, fresh as it is, as bitter as it is, and I'm like, it is what it is now. Right. I mean, I you know I talk about it a lot. My bar is all about bitters. Um, you know, bitter is the only acquired taste. Uh, you know, like you said, we come out of the womb craving sugar. We're also very leery, very. Um, uh, our brains are hardwired to to consider that bitterness might be toxic or poisonous to us, so it takes a while to adjust your palate. You know, you have to you have to taste something more than once to to allow your brain to relax and and let your taste buds take over. So I, I totally understand that it's an acquired taste, and it seems like you you've now acquired it, and now you're trying to use it for health and wellness, and even some just sort of solitude. You know, farming itself is a therapeutic uh, uh, you know activity, right? Yes, it is a very therapeutic I mean, activity, plus it's also a bug. It's a bug that catches you. So once you start planting stuff, you want to plant more and more. And so for me, it was like, number one, I wanted to plant more, but I also wanted to plant uh, so much variety. Now I'm getting into a space where I don't have the variety, and all I just need is someone to freaking send me seeds. Just send me seeds, I will grow. Just I don't care what seed it is, just send it. I would try right. and grow it. I'm like, you know, let's get it there. Whatever it is, we can make it work. Because right. I, I mean, like I've got into a place whereby if you can change the micro system of the environment of where you are, 
the whole entire environment will change and that will bring in more fresh air. It will bring more, you know, better environment, uh, less attacks in terms of, uh, you know, what happens in the farm and stuff like that. So it's it's a, on a broader scale, it is so, social con- conservation and social wealth that appeals to everyone and satisfies everyone's um, ideas and needs, you know. Yeah, that's outstanding. Um, talk to me about your notion of farm-to-glass uh, cocktail culture, because uh, I'm certain that you're tying the farm to the spirit, right? All these, as Greg said, lessons you've learned throughout life, you're you're putting them all together into sort of a, a master's thesis. So, uh, talk to talk to us a little bit about farm to glass cocktail culture. Oh, so farm to glass. I mean, I will. I think this is the best part of my day to day activity because I get to play with fresh spices, herbs, and you know all these things. And something as simple as mindful drinks that previously was just either juice or soda, you know, or whatever it might be. Now I get on the farm and I'm like, I want more complexity. I want more flavor. So I will pick something like strawberries and I will, uh, you know, make a puree of strawberries and oregano, or strawberries and marjoram and ginger. So kind of putting three or four different parents together and making, you know, a, a, stand, a standout drink for whether it's a kids or whatever it might be. like, So it, it, it's making people think that mindful drinks or wellness is not such a bad idea. It doesn't have to be just juice. It doesn't have to be just soda. Like, let's explore all these flavors and let's think. So as a bartender or as a drinks person, stop thinking just one layer. I need different layers. So it also gives me a chance to... So a couple of months ago, I was, I was making Oxymel, which is like basically apple cider and honey infused with botanicals and spices. Most people haven't heard about it. I was like, I was shocked because this is stuff that people need to know and people need to try it. But now I'm getting to try it out from the farm. And every time people come taste it, they're like, this is amazing. I'm like, it's not amazing. It's obvious. It's just common (laughs) sense. Like, yo, it's the best thing to do in life. Like, it's no i totally i totally agree it's like i remember the first time i had like a real actual straw like not not like one of the like the big puffed up driscoll's ones but like a real actual strawberry that was like you know fresh off of the the vine on a farm and just it stuck with me for years what a mind-blowing experience of just being like oh this is what this is supposed to taste like and i i love that it's like it's not complicated it's actually it's it's obvious it's the way these plants want to be we've just we're now having to reverse engineer all of the extra crap we've done to them to make you know for higher yields to make them last longer at the grocery store or whatever you know yeah and it also gives you the sign of respect that not everything will grow in a particular season so you kind of also need to know what will bloom on what so you start thinking long term you start thinking you know what am i gonna have for a particular season that means i cannot ask for something that is out of season based on the fact that it appreciate the little things that are available if it's you know if it's chocolate mint that is available in that season take that and use it if it's so uh, you know blueberries take that and use it so stop thinking about so much as trying to export stuff, but try use local, like buy local, support local farmers because they need you. And I think one of the key things I've learned during the whole corona period is like people need to stand out and support the local farmers because they are doing 
the harder task of growing this stuff for you. And you have the easier task of just getting to the farm and tasting this stuff, you know, like know it. It's not rocket science. <laughs> You're right. It's yeah. it, we, we were doing this long before we had any kind of science. We, this, you know, we, 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 we learned to, uh, you know, sit down and cultivate uh, long before we had any, any sort of like higher learning. Um, well, Eugene, this has been a great and fascinating talk with you. I, we really appreciate you spending your time with us. Um, I know you've got a couple of different Instagram handles that people can follow you on. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, Rum Bishop, and that's R H U M Bishop, right? And the other one is Bishop Botany Farm, and that's where you're doing more more of your farming stuff. It looks like uh, you're just getting that Instagram going. Um, and then, of course, uh, you're you're part of the African Rum Guild. Uh, how can people get in touch with you if they want to talk about that? I mean, you could find me on Instagram, Facebook. I mean, you can call me. You can reach me out. Like as as you said, I'm available. So we we're gonna make this happen. I mean, let's make uh, everyone in the industry grow something. I really would love to see people growing stuff, which is important. Uh, let's stay mindful and well by understanding we are what we eat. So if that's a thing, let's know where our food comes from and let's preach about good food. Preach about it because you're the bishop. I love it. Um, well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today on the Speakeasy, uh, Eugene. Uh, and man, we wish you all the best over there. And uh, you know, maybe uh, when we get to a place where travel is safe again, uh, Greg and I will try and come over and, and we'll do a we'll do a broadcast from there. It will be awesome. We could even do a couple of cocktails for you guys at the farm. So we'll be waiting for you. Awesome. I, I got to admit, I am a little bit curious about this medicine mix like i kind of like i might it might not be good but after hearing you talk about it so much i kind of want to try it so i mean it it changes the minds of people so just i mean like that's what i'm here to do change your mind convince you beyond reasonable doubt that you know what everything good comes from the farm so love it let's do it perfect (laughs) yeah you need a farmer three times a day yeah you Uh, need a farmer three times a day salut yeah (laughs) Well, thanks again so much uh, for joining us this week on The Speakeasy. And, and uh, I think that's it, guys. So cheers, everybody. Cheers, cheers y'all. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fair, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.